Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. Moving to Live, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, believes that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity. If you like what you're hearing on Moving to Live, please leave us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast app is. I've said before that some of the best interviews that I have on Moving to Live come from recommendations from past guests. A big shout out to Commander Sam Brassfield of the United States Navy. I believe the weekend after we're recording this, we're recording this on a Friday, Sam is going to be attempting a 100-mile run after skydiving out of the sky, along with his buddy Justin of Veterans Adventure Group, who we also interviewed. And when Sam first contacted me and said, hey, you ought to interview this guy, Aaron Hale, that I know, he lost his vision in an EOD accident in the military, and then he lost his hearing. My first question was, well, how's that going to work on Zoom? Because Aaron's in Florida, and I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Aaron chimed in on Facebook Messenger and said, yeah, let's do this. So Aaron, thank you for taking time. You are the first uh, individual who is blind and deaf that I've interviewed for Moving to Live. Well, thanks for having me. You're uh, very brave. I think one of the interesting things, I've looked at your website and the way I start out with uh, Moving to Live is I ask somebody, you meet somebody in an elevator and they say, you know, who are you? What do you do? What's your 30-second elevator spiel about Aaron Hale? Okay, I should develop one of those. Uh, I'm a former Navy cook and former Army bomb technician that have gone on to climb mountains, whitewater kayak, run ultra marathons, uh, run a uh, online chocolate business, and am now a father of three boys, including uh, identical twin infants. So I move a lot. And my question before we get into more of your story going from a cook to a EOD guy is, were you an active kid growing up or is this something you kind of discovered either in the military or after you got out? 
I was always uh, a fan of the outdoors. Uh, I grew up with my uh, younger brother and sister in rural Ohio, Northeast Ohio, just outside of Akron. Uh, we had about 20 acres, most of that being woods. So, of course, when I was a kid, I wouldn't, you know, breaking sticks and running through, you know, climbing trees and falling out of them. Uh, not too far from uh, my home, we also had uh, some uh, so some climbing rocks and cliffs. So uh, that was where I was most most days after school if I wasn't playing football or lacrosse. Yeah, so yeah, I I think um, being active was always always a part of or part of life. I was never really a competitive uh, athlete, uh, except when it came to being on the football field. However, uh, I always loved being outside. Hated being cooped up indoors for too long. And I'm curious: is that one of the reasons why you decided to enter the military, or were there other reasons to say I want to join the army? Well, I first joined uh, the Navy as a cook, and that was, uh, in fact, my entire life before, until about a month before I joined the Navy, I absolutely knew without a doubt I'd never be in the military. Uh, <laughs> um, I just, I, you know, I, I grew up uh, a, a happy kid uh, and into a happy teenager, and then um I was just uh, it was basically uh, happy-go-lucky, aloof, no real direction, no uh, discipline, no real ambition of any sort. I went to college because that was kind of what I was supposed. To, I was supposed to what, uh, what I was supposed to do after high school. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I picked international business because I loved to travel, and business sounded very general. Uh, I joined a fraternity. Uh, made it my own little animal house, even though there were really bright guys in that, that uh, uh, fraternity, that chapter, that were doing great things. But I just wanted to party. And soon enough, I you know, partied my way right out of school. Um, I was first put on academic suspension uh, or academic well, probation and then academic suspension, which meant I couldn't go back to another Ohio uh, state school for five years because my grades were so bad. Uh, that was, uh, was embarrassing. Uh, it was a real uh, kick in the seat. Uh, and I knew that I needed to, to get my act together. So um, I left school. I moved out to California uh, where my, uh, uh, my dad was. I got a couple of jobs, started walking everywhere I went, uh, started eating right. Lost that freshman 50. Um, and I soon realized, you know, I was, I was feeling better. I was doing more. I was running on the beach, you know, was, uh, of course, I was, I was doing all the, you know, the, the swimming and bodyboarding and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was enjoying myself and I was feeling better, but I wasn't making any money. I was living in California and the cost of living for, for it was, it was just outrageous. So, I decided it was, it was time to do something uh, with a serious plan, a goal in mind. So I decided I was going to go back to school, even though I'd burned away a bunch of my tuition. I figured, okay, how am I going to get this tuition back? Uh, the military was the answer uh, with the GI Bill. Uh, I, could, I could go to you know military for four years and 
get the GI build and I could get out and, you know, get back on, you know, professional path. However, you know, 14 years later, I'm still in the military and uh, loving my life. So, uh, you know, the, the, the moving aspect, the physical aspect of the military uh, didn't really catch on. Uh, I mean, I was in, you know, the Navy and being a Navy cook, it, there was not a fitness isn't uh, uh, put set at a premium uh, all the time. Uh, do they, I've heard it be, I've heard it called uh, three mile a year club because we take two physical fitness tests uh, each uh, with a mile and a half, you know, uh, you know, run portion. So literally some people would run three miles in an entire year. But uh, you know, I tried to keep busy. I became the the um, the PT coordinator for my my unit when I was stationed out in Italy. Uh, we we would do. I would have these guys uh, at the local gym in the doing water aerobics or uh, whatever I could I could do to to keep them moving. Um, so I still liked to to be physically fit, but. It wasn't until being, you know, joining the army a few years later that uh, and switching over to explosive ordnance disposal (EOD) uh, and becoming a bomb technician that it became far more important because you know I'd be deploying to uh, inhospitable territories and would have to, you know, fight the battle, uh, and I may be asked to, and often was. Asked to you know, you know, I had to perform my duties while in a bomb suit and you know outrageous temperatures and keep my wits about me uh, while working on you know unexploded ordnance or an IED and uh, that takes you know a certain level of physical fitness. So I kept myself and my team, uh, you know, like a, you know, we try to keep ourselves you know, at a peak of our physical fitness. I'm curious. One of my favorite things about moving to live in the sister podcast, Fit Lab Pittsburgh, is learning more about people. You said you entered the Navy and you were a Navy cook before you transitioned over to the Army. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But before that, when you entered uh, the Navy as a cook, did you have cooking experience in the past or did you enjoy cooking in the past? And the reason I asked that is when I was in high school, my senior year, there were eight senior boys sitting in study hall and the home ec teacher came in and said, do you want to take a home ec class? You get to eat. And that literally was where I started enjoying good food. And in no way would I say I'm a chocolatier, but I enjoy cooking. So I, back from when I was 17 or 18, I enjoyed it. So my two-part question for you, before you became a cook, is it something you enjoy doing yourself? And do you think that background contributed to developing the chocolate business? Well, uh, yes and yes. Uh, I've been cooking uh, since I could reach over the counter. You know, my, my folks got divorced when I was about eight years old. And uh, my mom became a single working mom with three kids. Uh, so I, I think as far as early as maybe third grade, I was making lunches for my brother, sister, and, and myself 
uh, and like just my whole family's got a very creative uh, uh, side to them. My my mom's an incredible artist, you know, painter, sketch artist, that kind of stuff. So was my brother. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, it runs in the family. My creative gene lied in uh, lies in the kitchen. I love to create. Uh, terrific uh, flavors and tastes. And, and it was more, you know, of course, I love the taste and, and textures and, and, and everything that goes with, you know, cuisine. But I also enjoyed, uh, you know, sharing that with others, you know, giving, you know, somebody else, you know, that enjoyment, that experience. Um, and then, of course, later on, after uh, my injury, and even before that, uh, I, I always, it was always a passion. In fact, uh, my last deployment, uh, while I was an EOD technician, we were out in the middle of nowhere, out in the desert. Uh, and uh, you can't, can't be switched on all the time. Some guys play video games. Some people watch movies. Um, whatever they, they do to, to when they're off-duty time. Uh, I built a... a, 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 a was basically playing in the mud behind my uh, my tent, but I I actually made Afghan moon dust um, uh, sun dried baked uh, uh, sun baked bricks, and I I made a, a pizza oven in the back of uh, our, behind our tent. Uh, so you know I even wrote uh, I think it was King Arthur flower. And I told them what I was doing, and they sent out bags of flour, pizza dough, even one of those pizza stones and the pizza peel, you know, the big flat spatula thing. And uh, I was making fresh baked bread and pizzas for the guys on our, our little command outpost. And we, I'd take these things into the, um, <clears throat> into the talk, uh, the headquarters, and I go, where did, where did you get a loaf of bread? Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was always uh, something. It's always a passion of mine. So when uh, I was injured, uh, not long after I'd completed my my oven, uh, <laughs> ended to leave it behind. Um, I uh, uh, it became therapeutic. Uh, uh, I I was injured in 2011. I lost my eyesight and became uh, both a public speaker and an outdoor adventure uh, athlete. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. One of the things was it was complete, it was, it was out of just sheer fear, terror of being stuck on the couch, stuck indoors, uh, um, trapped uh, by my, my injury, by my blindness. So I maybe overcompensated a little bit. I started climbing mountains, whitewater kayaking, running marathons. Um, and then uh, I, I became a public speaker as well. I was telling my story, uh, trying to inspire others, sharing this, these experiences. And um, about four years later, I came down with uh, uh, bacterial meningitis, which stole what was left of my, my hearing that the blast hadn't taken. So I was trapped in my body. Uh, I, I, there was no input. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. There was a chance uh, I could get my, some of my hearing restored with the, the cochlear implants, which now uh, allow me to talk to you. But um, it would take over six months of healing surgeries 
uh, and tuning in of the cochlear implants before I could hear another human voice. So in that time, it was a very isolating, a very uh, lonely time, just literally trapped. My, my whole world ended right at the ends of my fingers. Uh, it took my vestibular balance, that inner ear sense of balance with it. So I came home in a wheelchair and, and the, the trekking poles, eventually uh, I could get up back on my feet, but I was using the trekking poles that I was uh, climbing mountains with, you know, walking poles. I was using that just to get down to the mailbox and back. And that would be an exhausting experience. Uh, so, you know, it was tough, but, uh, one thing that I knew I could still do was cook. We, we had, uh, we were having Thanksgiving and since I couldn't really travel, uh, we invited friends and family from all over. We had this huge, huge feast and I started cooking, uh, way in advance, like weeks in advance I was doing stuff and, and it was it was definitely, it was therapeutic for me. Um, something I found I still could do. I was making cakes and pies and cookies and just freezing them, uh, waiting for the big day. I started making batch after batch of fudge. Um, and, and definitely uh, one of the big reasons uh, I have to spend so much time on the treadmill. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it was, it was, um, I was having so much fun. Uh, my my uh, girlfriend at the time, my wife now, uh, Michaela, said she noticed something on me that she hadn't seen in six months. It was, a, it was a smile. I was having a good time. And I was excited about Thanksgiving and family coming. I was actually looking forward to tomorrow. So the cooking was definitely, uh, definitely therapeutic. I was pouring uh, my emotion into it, I was pouring, you know, spices and nuts and even some of the, the liquor from the boot, you know, the, the liquor cabinet uh, in there. And I was, I was just, just experimenting and having fun. Um, Michaela also noticed that I was making far too, too much fudge for one family uh, in one holiday. So she started sneaking some of this uh, fudge out the front door. Like, you got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But uh, she was giving it away. Uh, friends, neighbors. And they were started coming back and asking if they could buy some more uh, for baby shower coming up or birthday or something. And of course, the capitalist in me said, "Well, of course you may." Uh, and that's what started. That's this kind of into a snowball of uh, what's now extraordinary delights or eodfudge.com. We're talking to Aaron Hale of eodfudge.com, who's been telling us how he's moved from a. Uh, I guess we we can say this is a less than ideal academic college student, and I'm kind of not really in the same boat as you, but kind of in the same boat as you because my claim to fame is my first two semesters in college were a two one and a one eight eight nine. So maybe I didn't uh, party quite as hard as you did, but like you, I kind of struggled. And my my biggest uh, accomplishment was getting a higher GPA my sophomore year, so my dad did not continue to hassle me about my low GPA. I'm interested of a lot of what you said. I want to kind of jump back a few minutes. Cook in the, in the military, a real passion for food from a young age. I could very easily see you be somebody who got out of the military, opened a restaurant, and we'd be reading about you as a highfalutin chef. 
but you made the decision to transition from one branch of the military to another and really do even more than 180 degrees and go from cooking to EOD. How did that come about? Uh, you know, it, it, it was part uh, um, it was part dissatisfaction with being a Navy cook. Now, I loved, I do love cooking, and I've had some. I love my time as a sailor and being in the in the Navy. Uh, I was stationed uh, half of my time in the Navy was spent in Italy. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, uh, they. They, they kind of look at uh, culinary specialist is what I was um, as hotel restaurant management. So when I wanted to cook, uh, you know, I love that part of it. But uh, and, and I actually was, uh, you know, I, I impressed somebody enough to, to let me cook for the, the Admiral the Sixth Fleet in Gaeta, Italy, the uh, you know the U.S. Um, fleet that is uh, that covers the the Mediterranean and, and the uh, East Atlantic seaboard. So uh, I, I got to do some fantastic cooking. Got to travel all over Europe uh, and the Mediterranean. It, it, it was it was it was an incredible time. Um, but uh, the the flip side of that is on shore duty, uh, culinary specialists at least at the time, also ran the barracks. So for a few years out of my, my time in the Navy, I was like the front desk clerk or you know, running trouble call tickets to the public works guys. My first duty station in Naples, Italy, was uh, spent mostly uh, escorting the local national Italian plumbers and electricians to barracks rooms uh, and making, you know, just... Be, you know, basically the maintenance petty officer for the barracks and well you know yes you know, every job in the military is important everybody plays its ro their role um it wasn't um i wasn't really exercising my my my, my potential uh i was enjoying my time i uh i made I made took advantage of every every minute i could i, I took college courses i learned italian uh in fact i i learned uh <laughs> most of my italian from these these you know uh, uh neapolitan roughnecks uh you know, you know i would just point at things and go come sedice come sedice how do you say this how do you say that and i was learning words for like washer and faucet and uh electrical outlet but i was learning italian uh, however, I wasn't uh, I wasn't satisfied with my occupation. Uh, and in 2004, when I was cooking for the Admiral and we were out at sea in the Med, uh, both wars were kicking off or in full swing, and we were watching uh, Patriot missiles launch from the decks of these Aegis destroyers, these Aegis cruisers, and going over and turning on uh, CNN and watching them land in Baghdad. And I decided that I wanted to uh, play a more, more uh, kinetic role, a more direct role in the warfighting you know, effort. So I first volunteered as an individual augmentee. Uh, basically, I volunteered as a sailor to go fill in army billets in Afghanistan. 
of course, Navy cooks go run chow halls. Uh, and I, run, I ran a, a dining facility on a fob out in Farah, Afghanistan. So I went from cooking for the Admiral and 35 of his staff to cooking for six, 700 uh, ISAF, NATO troops, uh, U.S., uh, Spanish, Italian, uh, Portuguese, uh, and well, it w was closer. It was still cooking, and it, it was great. It was a little irony. A couple of years after leaving Italy and learning Italian, I'm in Afghanistan. I'm speaking Italian to these Italian special forces guys, but um, uh, it was there when I, I met EOD technicians, and they told me all about their job, told me about the tight-knit uh, brotherhood, the community within the military community, um, and just that they were first responders. They got to save lives on the battlefield and that everything about the job, the technical aspect, uh, the everything, uh, it just, that was, it clicked for me. That's what I wanted to do. So, um, uh, the, the Navy uh, and all the branches have EOD technicians. I put in a, a request to, uh, to transfer over to EOD, but, um, my rank in uh, as a cook, uh, that, that that job level was undermanned, so they didn't want to lose me. I guess they liked my cooking too much, but uh, uh, they weren't going to promote me either. So my contract ran out, uh, uh, and it was time for me to either re-enlist or take my you know, uh, or you know take the you know or walk. And I I left the Navy and I went over to the Army recruiter. Handed up my my field jacket, my my service record, and I said, uh, "I want to go EOD." And he, the recruiter said, "Welcome." And I got to keep my my rank. Uh, I went to uh, um, the EOD school, uh, which is actually a, a Navy run school. So it was kind of funny. I was in a different uniform, still feeling like a sailor, um, and it was it was pretty funny. I had. Uh, Navy devices on my army uh, uniform, so people were giving me some some strange looks. But uh, yeah, I trained to become an EOD technician, and soon I was deployed to Iraq, and then again to Afghanistan in 2011. I'm curious if you hadn't had the uh, incident where you lost your sight, do you think you'd still be in the EOD? Absolutely. Oh yeah, I loved the job. I loved loved it then. I love it today. Um, I was doing uh, very important work. I, I can't, I have no idea uh, how many lives my team and my, my, my unit saved, but I know it was significant. And uh, I'm proud of the, uh, the service. Uh, the service, you know, we, we rendered. And I would absolutely love to have a chance to do it again. I would definitely still be doing it. We're talking with Aaron Hale, who's telling us his story from uh, northeastern Ohio to now in Florida, really serving in two branches of the service, losing his eyesight in one of them. You mentioned a few minutes ago when you uh, got out of the military because of losing your sight, you said, you know, maybe I overcompensated by doing all of these outdoor adventures because I, I didn't want to be trapped in my body. And I think... Uh, one of the interesting things that you, that you may have hit on, whether you know it or not, is both with that and also after you lost your hearing is 
whether consciously or subconsciously, you, you made the decision or the understanding that movement was part of your lifestyle. It just wasn't a workout. Were you aware of it as a time or was it more along the lines of, well, I can do this, so I'm going to do this because it prevents me from just sitting here and doing nothing? Um, I truly believe, and I think this is uh, best, it was, my own philosophy is best explained by uh, Jocko Willick, who uh, terrific, has a terrific book called Extreme Ownership. And we take responsibility for everything. Um, I, of course, couldn't control uh, my blindness. I couldn't, I can't restore my own sight, but I can control how I react and, and what I do next. So in that sense, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no longer a victim. I don't, I didn't, you know, I take back the power uh, that might be, you know, uh, might have been taken from from others um, that have that sense of uh, defeat. So I I decided that I was I was going I wasn't going to sit back and just let the rest of my life pass me by because I couldn't see. Uh, if I was going to be blind, I was going to be the best damn blind guy I could be. So uh, I started researching ways to uh, to be to be blind to do things to get outside and that was that really was one of my fears was uh, how was I going to be able to do this or that how was I going to get out so I started uh, you know I learned how to you know I went to the it's a um, blind rehabilitation center the VA has uh, units all over the uh, the United States and I went to the one in uh, Augusta Georgia and, and part of the training was learning how to use uh, voiceover, the text-to-speech uh, within my computer, my phone, and other uh, devices. And as soon as I could get on the internet, I was, I was researching, putting in the search, uh, blind plus outside, blind plus running, blind plus whatever. And a few names kept popping up. One was a, a blind man named Eric Weinmayer, who was the, the first blind person I think still the only to ever climb Mount Everest. And, and you know what? I, I sought him out. I climbed a mountain with him. Uh, and he, uh, on the anniversary of, of climbing Mount Everest, he took an entire wounded veteran team up uh, a sister summit to uh, Everest called uh, Mount Labashe. And it turned into a program called Soldiers to Summits. I uh, was I got jumped on to the third iteration of this uh, uh, program. Uh, it's proven Andy's team, uh, and we we climbed an eighteen thousand foot peak in in Peru. Um, kind of through all of that, I met a, a, a blind person, another Navy veteran who was the first blind man to, first blind person to climb, or no, to, to kayak the entire Grand Canyon, Lonnie Bedwell. And you know what? I sought him out. And I went kayaking with him. And I got myself uh, you know, kayaking the, the Yellowstone River, class three rapids. And it, it just, and the running became kind of a byproduct 
of trying to get ready for the mountains and kayaking. Uh, it's, you know, I live in Florida. It's kind of hard to find a decent mountain around here. But, uh, I could still run. I could still go up and down stairs. They have some tall condominium buildings here. And I started running. And I would just find running partners, guides, people to run right beside me. And we'd you know, just hold a tether between us. Uh, I started off with just one of those uh, foot-long uh, dog you know, tug-of-war ropes. I would hold a knot. My, my running guide would uh, hold a, the other knot. And I would just get all my cues right from the, the rope. And we would just run and chat shoulder to shoulder. And, and eventually, uh, I was going further distances. And, and then, um, you know, somebody got in my head that I, I was talking to a, another blind veteran, Ivan Castro, who's a big time runner. <clears throat> uh, and, and he he always made it, a, he said he, made, he always makes it a point to run uh, the Air Force Marathon, the Army 10-Miler, and the Marine Corps Marathon every year. I thought, that sounds really patriotic. I think I'll do that too. So before having run uh, a single marathon, I'd signed up for all three of those. As somebody, it, I, mean, I guess I'm very suggestible, um, but somebody talked me into running a local uh, marathon. I signed up for the Pensacola Marathon. I don't even know how I got talked into the San Antonio Marathon. But somehow, before running my first race, I was signed up for uh, Air Force, Marine Corps, Pensacola, San Antonio, and the Army 10-Miler, all within four months of each other. Um, and three of those races qualified me for Boston. It, it just it, it kind of took off, and it became uh, who I was and, and what I did. I got outside, and I, I just... I kept getting things done. And the more uh, of this, you know, this lifestyle that I got, the better I felt uh, and the more I wanted. I know it's amazing. The variety of people that I interview on uh, moving to live who talk about getting outside to move, whether they run, whether they kayak, whether they, they hike. I know in my interview with our mutual friend, Sam Brassfield, he said that a lot of times in his command jobs, he'll go out and run with his second of command and they'll basically solve the problems that they were worrying about the previous day. So I think one of the things that a lot of people recognize, I think you've picked up on it, I've picked up on it, but a lot of people don't recognize is being outside, there's something about it that has a positive effect no matter what the activity is that you're doing. It's, you know, you, you, you call it moving to live. And it's, it's so true. Uh, uh, the physical fitness aspect of your life isn't just a physical, uh, isn't just about physical health. And if you think about it, it's, it's uh, there's a, it's a social aspect. I run with others. You know, every, everything in my life now is kind of a team sport, even if it can be done in a solitary way. Uh, I, I have somebody to do it with, uh, and well, then, you know, I got to coordinate, you know, schedules, uh, with other people to get my own training done. Uh, that's, that's a little thing compared to all the people I get to interact with. Uh, every time I go out and train, uh, it, and I can also, it can also be a solitary thing where I, I get on the treadmill and go, I've got a, you know, a fairly decent, uh, garage gym. And that's my man cave. That's my solitary time. Uh, 
but then you know it's it's a it's a mental thing because of course you're 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 working your body your blood is pumping it's thinking time and you're a sharper person uh when you're physically fit rather than sedentary um it's a community activity. I mean, there are so many different uh, benefits to getting out and being active. It's not just about your physical health, but everything. I think that's very well said. We're talking with Aaron Hale. He's telling us his story. You've given a, a really inspiring uh, talk about the benefits of moving and how you continue to move after you lost your eyesight. But then you kind of had another kick in the pants. I think you said four years after your eyesight, you uh, contracted meningitis and lost your hearing. Was there a thought period during that time that's like, okay, this is it. I can't do this again. Or was it kind of like, okay, this is another hurdle that I have to jump over? Absolutely. I mean, yes. Um, just after uh, the meningitis. I mean, I, I was, I was put in the hospital again. It nearly killed me. Um, uh, my family really thought that this was, there was, this was going to be the end. Um, but the doctors pulled me through. Uh, however, either the meningitis or the, uh, the, the heavy, heavy doses of antibiotics, uh, had, uh, stolen what was left of the, the, the hearing that the, last hadn't taken and um i was sitting you know, the you know the kitchen breakfast bar on the stool just um thinking you know why me what if those demons try to creep into my head and uh um you know, starting to feel sorry for myself uh trying to think you know when is when is this you know soldier paid his dues you know when has one person had enough and 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 it just is really self-defeating attitude um um i uh not built that way uh, I, I, and i began to think it was actually uh you know a little embarrassing to to catch myself thinking that way after four years of speaking in front of crowds, standing in front of crowds and talking about looking at the bright side, about uh, success through struggle, that, you know, looking forward to hardship for uh, how strong it can make you, how much better uh, you can be after, you know, through you know, having endured uh, and encouraged you know, the hardship to, to, to actually look forward to it. And here I was feeling sorry for myself because it was going to be hard. I'd lost, I'd lost something again. So, um, uh, you know, I did the, you know, the, the, the metaphoric uh, slap in the face. And um, thankfully I have some f you know, amazing family to, to support me. Uh, and, and even though I started off in the wheelchair and I, you know, I got to the trekking poles and, and I was, you know, walking around with, you know, like a, a quadruped. I got onto my treadmill and I would hold on to the stability, the stability bars with like an iron grip. And I would just hit the quick start and it would, you know, the treadmill would start at 0.5 miles an hour and I would just walk. And then I would hit the up arrow one beep. And now I was going a mile an hour. 
And that's how I started training again. And eventually I was jogging, still holding on with both hands. And uh, within a year of contracting meningitis, I uh, registered for my first marathon back was the 2016 uh, Akron Marathon, which is my hometown. And it was the same week as my 20th high school reunion. And even though it was probably the hardest 26.2 miles I've ever run, uh, I finally beat my, you know, I finally got a sub four marathon, which is uh, a PR for me. It's, it still stands, but, and, um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd proven that I could, I could, uh, you know, come back and I could do just about anything. Uh, and, um, I proved myself that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't full of it. You know, I, you know the, the, that there is, um, you know, there, there is a silver lining to everything that there, there is, uh, uh, you know, truth to that, uh, it's strength through struggle. Uh, and I just had to, you know, prove it to myself one more time. We're talking with Aaron Hale. I think one of the things you've hit on a number of times is, you took responsibility. I think it was John Kennedy who said, life isn't fair. And it isn't fair. It's kind of uh, sometimes people get things that happen that are not fair. I think one of the things that you've hit on that I really enjoyed is you kind of said, well, you know, what can I do? And I think that's something that a lot of people can take away from this. We're talking with Aaron Hale. I think one of the things that the listener should be aware of is in addition to not having your sight and not hearing, we're doing this conversation using technology and it's working extremely smoothly. I'm, I'm very impressed with the technology and you're willing to do this. And I think one of the things when talking about movement as a lifestyle, you're not done moving. You're planning on doing a hundred mile race coming up and then hopefully a 135 mile an hour race or excuse me, 135 mile race, not hour race. It might take 135 hours. I've always done endurance activities with kind of the effect of I finish something and it's kind of like, okay, that was fun. What else can I do next? Or what can I do differently? Is that kind of the path you're taking or do these two specific events that you have planned to do at some point in time, one of them coming up, something that they have special meaning to you? Well, uh, you know, having gone through, uh, the blindness, the bomb blast, and the you know the meningitis, and the you know the hearing loss, and all of that. Uh, I've certainly uh, learned about you know the the fragility of life, and, and you know our our own more uh, uh, mortality, and to start that. You know, start checking off things on bucket list right now. Don't wait. It's not you know someday. You know, I'll get to it someday. That never ever happens. So, uh, because I I love running and I love challenging myself. Uh, uh, it's been about a year and a half ago. I, I ran my first ultra marathon, which is a you know it was, it was actually a a twelve hour race uh, and it was a loop, and I um, I made it fifty point two miles, and. 
it was difficult. It was miserable. Uh, but, and it, but I loved it. In fact, it, it's so funny, whether it's a marathon or a mountain, uh, it, it's like every, you know, uh, the, on the, during the days leading up to it and the days just after, I can't wait for the next one. Uh, while in the middle of it, I'm thinking, what did I, what was I thinking? You know, uh, never again. But, uh, um, of course, I'm looking for, always looking for the, the next challenge, the, the next uh, mountain, the next uh, race. And I want to challenge myself to a, for a longer distance. So coming this May, I'll be running the Keys 100 and uh, uh, hopefully raising a few dollars for the EOD Warrior Foundation. Uh, 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 it's a hot one. It's a good uh, precursor to another uh, goal, which is to run the Badwater 135, which they call the, the most grueling uh, foot race on earth. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think one of the things I've got a friend of mine who's retired after being in academia and it's, he's still checking things off the bucket list. And I think wh whatever the situation is in life, if you, if you always think, you know, what can I look forward to? What's something that I enjoy doing? And I think one of the things that so many of the people that I've interviewed on moving to leave live have picked up on, whether they're elite athletes or whether they're back at the Packers, like I am just getting out and moving. I think you've done a phenomenal job of explaining how that really helps not a substitute for counseling or, or dealing with uh, problems that people might have, but just an adjunct to making life just a lot more fun. Well, you know, uh, I always think of uh, a quote I, I, I heard that uh, uh, Ray Kroc from McDonald's, he was talking about business, uh, but he said, you're either green and you're growing or you're brown and dying. And I think about that when uh, in my own personal growth, in my own physical fitness or uh, in our business. I think, you know, we, we got to continue to build on successes. We've got to keep working or, uh, you know, for me, I know that if I'm not constant, constantly working on um, challenging myself on my physical fitness, if I'm not trying to build uh, and do better, if I stop for a moment, I start feeling the wheels fall off. Uh, it, it's uh, the the physical erosion happens so fast, so I've got to do it uh, not just because uh, I'm drawn to do it, but I really do need to. I think that's a message we can all take. We're going to have extensive show notes. I have to confess, while listening to Aaron, I got on his website and ordered a pound of chocolate. So now I'm going to have to. Uh, keep on moving so that the chocolate doesn't get added to, the, to uh, my waistline. Uh, Aaron, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And once again, a big shout out to Sam Brassfield for suggesting you. Some of the best interviews you get are people saying, hey, you need to talk to this buddy of mine. Well, thank you very much. And I was, uh, I'm on just as happy that uh, Sam introduced us. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, 
Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.